Last night, uh, in our brief introduction in Isaiah, we looked at that major theme, which his name means anyway, Isaiah, God is salvation. And as just been mentioned, we saw two major aspects of salvation, a personal salvation from the judgment of God we deserve, and a political salvation where a nation, the people of God, are delivered from uh, the tyranny, the oppression of the unbeliever to hinder them from serving God, and God has to judge the nations. Uh, political and uh, personal salvation. At various times in our study, those things will come through, and we'll mention them when they do. But as we just, in general, looking at some uh, gleanings from Isaiah, uh, introducing today for a minute, if you'd start in Isaiah 1 for a minute, Isaiah chapter 1. Now, you know Isaiah is a book with 66 chapters, and uh, some have called it the miniature Bible. You know, 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, answer to the 39 books of the Old Testament and the emphasis on judgment and woe and so on. Uh, and that's why I'm reading from Isaiah 1, the condition of Judah and Jerusalem when Isaiah prophesied here, looking at verse 4, verse 4. Isaiah 1 and verse 4 from the Word of God. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers." And we'll stop there, and God does bless the reading of his precious word, and we'll be reading more later. A people that from head to toe were spiritually sick, but they didn't know it. And so they had forsaken the Lord. They had apostatized and had turned to the gods of the nations around them, and had turned to the power of the nations around them, and began to rely on other gods and their power of those nations. And God had to discipline his people, and their land started to become desolate. And so we, we have this picture mainly in the first 49 chapters, uh, I'm sorry, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, uh, of a people under the chastening judgment of God because of their sin. But now if you go to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, and it begins what some call book two, <laughs> It's the last 27 chapters of the book, 40 through 66. And it answers to the New Testament, where, yes, judgment will be talked about at times, but the emphasis now will be good news, will be comfort. It is good news of peace and comfort, not so much judgment, though there's some that carry through both sections. But, for example, look how chapter 40 starts out doesn't start out with a people that's desolate and sick from head to toe, but verse 1 
of chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this last section, the last 27 chapters, start out with a, a message of comfort as a whole. Now what I'd like to do today in my responsibilities is simply look at chapters 40 through 48, chapters 40 through 48, and draw excerpts out of them. Time won't permit to go verse by verse in these chapters or even thought flow by thought flow. But just to draw excerpts out of these chapters to show you what is happening. God himself is reaching to his desolate people and he wants them to come back. Reaching to people who are spiritually sick in their sins. And he's trying to draw their attention, not back to better politics and better ways to do it, but back to himself. For example... Look, look at verse 9 of chapter 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 9. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. I'd like to take that little phrase today and this afternoon. Behold your God. Someday they will be successful at this by the grace of God. But he's trying to turn their hearts now that they will look, they will consider on their God. Not the gods around them and all the bogus uh, uh, things that they offer. But, but, but they will look at the true God whom they are the people of God to behold your God. So what we'd like to do is look in these chapters and just draw excerpts out as we begin to behold our God. And as we do behold our God, we know he's been manifested in the flesh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you will see, as Israel's heart is drawn to behold their God, the glories, and who is this God? What is this character? What is he like? That You will see these things fulfilled in the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so let's begin to draw a few excerpts out. You might, you'll find a lot more than I'm talking about. I'm just drawing a few out in these chapters as he'll start to bring himself before his people to get their heart back. Now to help you remember them, I'm going to start them all with the letter P as in Paul. You might think of a better word, and that's fine. Uh, but just to help us remember, we want to start to see these things as we attempt to behold our God. Having said that, Look at the next verse after the phrase, Behold your God. Look at verse 10. Isaiah 40 and verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. You're going to see in Isaiah, you're going to read phrases and you'll say, That's in the New Testament. And it is. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament is the book of Isaiah. And here we read in verse 10 the power of God, drawing their attention to the power of God. Look at verse 10 again. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. That's that political salvation. 
He's coming with a strong hand. He's going to deliver Israel and give them freedom to love and serve the Lord someday. And it will be his power that does it. And he comes with his reward. Remember the last book to the churches in Revelation, you know? And you have in Revelation 21, 12, where the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. <laughs> He's coming with his reward. And he's coming with a sword out of his mouth to put down the opposing nations and Antichrist. And with his power, he will devour them. Not something man's going to be able to do through politics, but through the power of the Lord. So as we begin here, he draws their attention to the, to the power of God. Your God has power, and he will rule with that power. It's nothing you can really do down here by alliances with the nations like Israel was trying and compromising. That's not going to do it. You have to look to your God and behold your God. He is a God of power. You know, we come to the New Testament, and that's still the message in the Lord Jesus, isn't it? That, uh, that court, he was raised from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You know, Romans 1, 4. The gospel we preach is called, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That we stand in the power of God. We have a God of power. And so he brings to a people who were now looking to earthly gods and nations for their survival. He's drawing them to himself and revealing himself as the God of power in verse 10. But not only is he a God of power, I'd like you to look at verse 11. Verse 11 of Isaiah 40. It says, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. When it comes to God's people, he's not some dictator crushing with a sword and forcing obedience. It's not God. You study him throughout the Old Testament, and he never forces himself on his people. He desires that they want him, and they do it his way. But, but even ancient Israel, you'll remember when they wanted a king, you know. Samuel, ask us a king. And Samuel was grieved. That, that they, and God says, you know, don't be. They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God saw that they did not want his government, his rule over Israel. So you know what he told Samuel to do? Listen to him. Give him a king. <laughs> I won't forsake them for my name's sake. They'll suffer the consequences of such a choice, but I'll not forsake him over that. God himself will never force himself. You see, what we have here in verse 11 is the pastoral heart of God. He's a shepherd. That's what the word shepherd is, pastor. The pastoral heart of God. That, that he leads his people like lambs. He gathers them in his arm. The Lord is my shepherd. Huh? Psalm 23.1. And you, I know you know, brothers and sisters, when we get to the New Testament, and God has manifested himself in the flesh through the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the character of the Lord Jesus to you and I? It's a shepherd, isn't it? Huh? You know, there's three titles given to the Lord Jesus concerning a shepherd. I know you know these. One is he's the good shepherd. Huh? John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. 
He died on the cross for your sins and mine. A shepherd that cared for our destiny. But you know, you get to Hebrews 13, 20, and he's not called the good shepherd there. He's given another title. He's called the great shepherd. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And it doesn't point you to the cross there. The next verse in verse 21 says, make you perfect in every good work working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he not only died for us, he works in us to perfect us, to make you and I well-pleasing. He's a shepherd to us. And yet, there's another title he's given, First huh? Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, then ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And it's the future. He's coming back. We're going to be glorified with him, the chief shepherd. And so from the cross, from salvation, to sustaining you in life, to coming back for you someday in glorification, he's with us all the way. You know, as 1 Peter 2.25 puts it this way, that ye were a sheep going astray, but are returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So as we begin to behold our God like Israel was asked to do, we start to see that this God is a pastor. He's a powerful God, but not a power that crushes his people because he has a pastoral heart. Laid down his life through the Lord Jesus. Carries us along and working with us and working in us and someday coming for us. And so we have a God with a pastoral heart. So those are some of the beginning things in Isaiah 40. As we behold our God, who is this God? Now, now the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 40, goes into the proclamation of God, of who he is. The proclamation of God. And he wants to draw Israel's attention to the revelation of who this God is. Because they were now falling for idols. And they would have good luck charms and statues and pray to them like the pagan nations, if you can believe that. Thinking somehow these would guide them through. So the Lord goes on to give a proclamation of himself, of the greatness of who he is. I'm not going to read all the verses, but, but go down to chapter 40 here and uh, look at verse 18 in this proclamation of God. Look at Isaiah 40 and verse 18. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains, etc. God says, if you're going to make something like me, you have a problem. To whom then will ye liken God? Uh, what likeness will ye compare unto me? You see, he's the incomparable God. If you're going to make some statue, some picture, some painting, whatever, you have a problem when it comes to God. If it's you and I, you don't have a problem. We have Photoshop. You can actually make us look better. You know? <laughs> but, but when you come to God, the only thing you can do when you make an image out of him is reduce him. You know, it'll be something dead. God's not dead. Something that can't speak. God can speak. God's eternal. This is something you have to carry. It can be broken. 
Whatever you do, in any way you try to replicate God beyond faith through the spirit of apprehending him by faith, you'll do nothing but reduce him, picture, carving, whatever it is. Because he's the incomparable God. And he's challenging Israel to think about this. To whom then will you liken God? Uh, what likeness will you compare unto him? So that when you do anything to compare to God and make something, you can only defame him, you can only bring him down. You know, when we were in high school or grade school back in Pittsburgh, where I grew up, uh, they'd give out those class pictures, you know, those little pictures, and the students would trade them back and forth. And we'd get a hold, us guys would get a hold of these girls' pictures, and we'd put a mustache on her and a beard, and, you know, she'd get quite angry at us. <laughs> we defaced her. We defamed her, okay? And that's exactly what happens when, when we began to replicate God because he's the incomparable God. There's nothing you can make like him. So he goes on to proclaim himself to show them this. In fact, moving up just a bit in the chapter for a second, look at verse 12. Look at Isaiah 40 and verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? or being his counselor, hath taught him. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him in knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. You recognize some of these verses from Romans 11, don't you? Who hath been the Lord's counselor? You know, he even measures the dust. He weighs the dust you know, in his creation. He knows all these things. Who did God go? Did he go to creation school to learn how to do it? I say that respectfully. Nobody's been his instructor. It, it, it all originated. As we've been hearing, he's the source of all things. Yet we, we sometimes go for counsel. Who does God go for counsel? If he had to go to somebody, then they would be God. And so this great God, he even knows the weight of dust. He, he seeks no advice from anyone. He has all wisdom. How could you ever make anything that would compare to the incomparable God? He goes on to reveal himself, look at verse 21. Verse 21, the proclamation of God to Israel. Verse 21, have ye not known, have ye not heard, hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that setteth upon the circle of the earth. Isaiah's day knew it was round before we did. It is he that setteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. When God walks on earth with Adam and Eve, he lived in a tent. The tent ceiling was what we call outer space, the stars. We pitch a little tent, he pitched the heavens, huh? the host. Look at verse 23. That bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity, Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown, yea, their stocks shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow up on them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. The great politicians and kings and princes, they look powerful, and God can remove them instantly. Look at verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? What in the world can you make like? Who is equal to God? What is equal to God? So that therefore any form of idolatry brings him down. 
You know, the New Testament has the same warning to us, doesn't it? 1 John 5, 21. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. Things that grab our attention. We think that this is where it's at. Anything that we try to replicate God only defames God. Look, he goes on to say, look at verse 26. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Look at everything he's created, and the host of heavens, the stars and the planets, he names them. I mean, we name a few, you know, Pluto, Mars, Venus, and so on. He has a name for every star. We don't know what they are, but this is the, the, the God who is great and has done all this. And then he, he's the creator God, the creator God. And so he goes on to say here, look at verse 27. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speaketh, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? And you think God doesn't see what you're doing. <laughs> Verse 28, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Their God that they need to behold, he's the creator. Nobody created him or they would be God. He's the everlasting God, the everlasting God. You know, that means he never has an end. I can kind of understand that. It also means he never had a beginning. Does anybody have that one figured out? I, I got to take it by faith. I don't. How, how can you have someone who never had a beginning, always existed? But if somebody was before him, uh, then, then that person would be God, the everlasting God, the creator. You know, brothers and sisters, as we study the New Testament, and that man called Jesus, he's the creator, he's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. And John 1.3 goes on to say about Jesus Christ, you know, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so this great Creator God is nothing less now than our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But drawing their attention to this Creator, this everlasting God, He doesn't faint. He has all wisdom. There's no searching of His understanding. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ, the wisdom of God. And so we see the, the, the foolishness of idolatry. And if we, as the hymn writer says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we begin to behold our God, why would we ever reduce ourselves to what the Gentile world can offer us and the nations and why would we ever think that we need the way that they approach God and idols and whatever else they do? All we will do is reduce God. And so beholding our God, the power of God, the pastoral heart of God, the proclamation of who this God is, behold your God. I want to go on to the next chapter. As I said, we're just drawing excerpts in these gleanings, not looking at every verse by verse, but... Let's see some more beholding of our God that he, where he's drawing Israel's heart to himself. Chapter 41, and you look at verse 10. We're now in Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Verse 10. He says, Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. 
I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We have the presence of God with his people here. I am with thee. A God who does not forsake his people, yes, he'll chasten them, but I am with thee, the presence of God. He's not some distant, removed God out there, and you say, uh, we'll never meet him, we'll never see him, we can't know much about him. His presence is with his people. I am with thee, and be not dismayed, and so on. Is that true to the New Testament Christian? What does the Lord Jesus say in Hebrews 13, 5? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The presence of Christ, Christ liveth in me. Galatians 2.20. Not only died for me, but 24 hours a day now, he lives in me and will be with me for all eternity. The very presence of God. You know, this presence of God, it goes on to say, I am with thee there in verse 10 of chapter 41. And there's seven verses in this chapter, in chapter 41, there's seven verses where God will say, I will. Sometimes he'll say it more than once. But in a total of seven verses, what God in his presence will do for you, not what you will do for him, but he's the one that will do it for you, for he's the everlasting God. He's the great God. By faith, we need to look to him, and he will do it. So there's seven verses with the I wills of God. Let's just look at them briefly. Here in Isaiah 41 and verse 10, again. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I will help thee. I will strengthen thee. I will uphold thee with my right hand. I will be thy helper. Wouldn't it be nice in this world to have a helper? What do we read in Hebrews 13, 6? After Christ said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee in verse 5, the very next verse in Hebrews 13 and verse 6 is, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is our helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Man will do a lot of things. Things are changing around us. But the Lord, I have his presence. He is my helper. I will what he will do. Look, look at the second declaration of God of that what I will do in verse 13. Isaiah 41 and verse 13. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. I will help thee. It's what I will do. He holds you by the hand. A God who wants to grab your hand, the right hand, and he'll be your helper. Not only to save you from sin and judgment, but to help you through life. This is the type of God we have. Behold your God. Look at the next mention of I will there in verse 14. Chapter 41 and verse 14, the third one. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You're a worm. What can a worm do to survive? Not a lot. Worm doesn't have much defense or attack or offense or anything. How does a worm survive? Jacob, you worm, I will help you. The answer is they're God, not what the world offers. And then the fourth verse that mentions the I wills of God is verse 15. Verse 15. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth, 
Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small and shall make the hills a shaft. I'll give you power. I'll cause you to overcome your enemies. I will do it, though. And then the fifth verse is verse 18 that has I will in it. It has a couple of them. Verse 18. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. The restoration of Israel. God, he restores our soul, we read in Psalm 23. But I will do it. And then the sixth one in verse 19. Verse 19, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shatah tree and the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together. What I will do in restoration. And then the last verse in this chapter that has I will in it is verse 27. Isaiah 41 and verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. There's good news ahead that Jerusalem will be involved in, and I will do it. And so we have the very presence of God, a God who in his presence, I will be thy helper. And we have it fulfilled now in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the revelation of God, to behold your God. Let's go to the next, uh, further down in chapter 41 and look at another one. Chapter 41, and now we're going to find ourselves in verse 21. Verse 21. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. He says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. What's happening here is God's going to ask his people to reason, to think, to use their mind. You know, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and also with all our mind. You know, this book has been appealing to his people to think things through. We didn't read it this morning, but I think you know it. Way back in Isaiah 1, verse 18, that sinful nation, sick from head to toe, laden with sins. You know what Isaiah verse 18 says, 118? Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let us reason together. Uh, God who wants, to, wants you to think uh, of what this God can do. And, and brothers and sisters, what we have here in Isaiah 41 and verses 21 through 26 is the proof of God. The proof of God. That is the evidence he has given us to satisfy our faith. Yes, we're to have faith. But does God just mean, just have faith, just got to believe? Everybody does that in the world. They just got to believe. What's important is where your faith rests. And God gives you proofs, proofs or evidences where your faith can rest. And he proves himself in his word to us. So we just don't have to say, well, I just believe because I think it's right. We have evidence to place that faith in that God has revealed to us. And he's asking his people to think this through with all the gods that they've been going to, the different religions. He said, I, you need to put them to a test because there's a proof of who's the real God. So let's see God's logic here in these verses. Look at verse 21 again of Isaiah 41, the proof of God. Produce your cause, saith the Lord, and bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen? 
And let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. So what I'd like you to do is whatever you're trusting, ask them to declare the former things. Tell them to tell you something that they weren't there personally to see. For example, people tell us all about how we got here, creation, evolution. How do they know? Nobody was here to observe it. How do I know creation? There's only one way I know. God has told us because he was there. He's declared us former things. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is. And I wasn't there to observe any of it. Scientifically, I can't observe it. But he was there and he's declared it for us. But more than that, he says here, declare us things to come. Declare us things to come. Tell the future. We call this prophecy Predict the future. You're gods if they're true. You see, to, to, to in, in, in advance, to know something in advance, and the longer you know it, it's going to show a supernatural ability. You, you can know pretty well some things in advance because you've got a lot of evidence. Like this is baseball season here. So you say, who's going to win the World Series? Yeah, you've got eight teams to pick from, maybe seven after today. I don't know. But uh, six, seven, eight teams, you can say, well, yeah, well, you know who the teams are. Now, I know you don't bet. But if somebody said, how much money would you bet your house, your car, who will win the World Series 812 years from today? Hmm. You don't even know who the teams will be. You don't even know if baseball will exist. And for you to make an accurate pre prediction with the age of time, which shows some absolute supernatural ability. And that is what God is saying here. Tell us things to come, because God has, as we're going to see in a minute, God has. You know, there are religions who have tried to prophesy, like the Mormon religion, that in the 1800s, Jesus Christ would come back to Independence, Missouri, and build a temple. Did it happen? You, you, can, put, you can put these to the test, tell us things to come. And God has done it. Look what he goes on to say in verse 23. Show the things that are to come hereafter. And we may know that ye are gods, yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. It is abomination as he that chooseth you. You know, if you're going to trust someone, put them to the test of prophecy. Show us the things to come. The Bible takes the risk of prophecy it presents to us the truth of God, the person of Christ, and other things through prophecy that God will give it hundreds, thousands of years sometimes in advance, and you can see if it came true or not. If it came true, then you know, you know you're dealing with the supernatural, the, the real God. Look at verse 26. Isaiah 41 and verse 26. Who hath declared from the beginning that we may know and before time that we may say, he is righteous, yea, there is none that showeth, yea, there is none that declareth, yea, there is none that heareth your words. So whatever you're trusting, put them to the test of prophecy and put God himself to the test of prophecy and God will be the only one that passes. That has declared not only former things, but things to come. I'd like to show you what Peter said about this subject of prophecy. The dynamic of biblical prophecy, predicting things in advance. So let's leave Isaiah for now and go to 2 Peter chapter 1, please, into the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
Peter is speaking of this coming salvation when we'll be delivered from this present evil world, the political aspect of it as well. There's a spiritual aspect too. But anyway, in this context, you go to chapter uh, 1 here of 2 Peter and looking at verse 16. 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. Writing to Christians here, he says in verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to stop there. He said, it's not a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some fable we got together and we said, we can just kind of design that. It'll give people hope and kind of give them something to live for. He said, the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, his power to put down sin, his power to rule for God, his coming back in glory. It's not a legend. It's not a fable. Well, Peter, how do you know it's not a fable? Well, look at the last phrase of verse 16. But were I witnesses of his majesty? We saw the Lord Jesus in all his majesty of glory with our eyes. He goes on to explain in verse 17. For he received from the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Peter referring to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the gospels that recorded is Matthew 17. And it says they saw the Lord Jesus on that mountain and he went back into his eternal glory to some degree. He became glistering white in the King James translation. Shining as the sun in its brightness. It wasn't just clothed in flesh. Now, now he's shining all that, the glory of God. And he, they were eyewitnesses of the glory of Christ in, his, in, in the manifestation of, of, of him being God. And they also, with their ears, heard God the Father speak concerning Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him, Matthew 17, 5. He heard the declaration of God claiming Jesus was his Son and saw the Lord Jesus in all his majesty. He said, it's not a fable. Now you say, that's wonderful. Peter has that. You say, but I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. You know what Peter says next? You got something even better than what I saw and what I heard. Look at the context of verse 19. 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. We have also a more sure. Just want to stop there. More sure. Something more sure than his eyewitness and what he heard. Sometimes you can hear things wrong. And sometimes you can think you saw something you didn't see, you know. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> we have something more sure. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. It will enlighten you to the reality of God. That the more sure word of prophecy, of predicting things in advance, and they come true. Verse 20 knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. man. Isaiah didn't sit down and think, I can stir people up with some positive thinking of the positive thing that's going to happen. Behold your God. No, it didn't come by the will of man. But the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so it's God himself writing it. And so we have this more sure word of prophecy. You know, when it comes to our Savior, 
God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus. How do you really know he's right? God gave him to you through prophecy. Hundreds of years, sometimes thousands. Before it ever happened, he said things that would happen of his Messiah, the one he anointed, whom we know as the Lord Jesus. So that when Peter would preach the gospel, even the Gentiles, in Acts 10.43, he would preach it this way. To him, the Lord Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. The prophets give witness. There is somewhere to put my faith, not just, I just believe because believing is good. I believe in the God who has said it. I, I believe his word because he's given it to us in prophecy. So what is he, and we're not going to go through all of them, but in the Old Testament, speaking of the one who would rule for him, he tells you what country he would be born in, what county, and what city, hundreds of years before it ha happened. Bethlehem, Ephrata, and Israel will bring forth God's ruler in the city of Bethlehem. That's exactly where the Lord Jesus was born. That was said hundreds of years before. It also would give you his nationality. He'd be a Jew and of the line of David, a royal family. That kind of narrows it down out of billions of people in the world. You know, it's, to be of the royal line of the line of David, of the Jewish family, has to be born in Bethlehem. Starts to eliminate most of humanity. Gave you the type of, type of transportation he would use in Zechariah 9.9. You know, an unbroken donkey, huh? That's tough to ride. Tells you he would be buried in a rich man's tomb 712 years before it happened in Isaiah 53, the prophet we're studying. A thousand years before it happened, it depicted his death. They have pierced my hands and my feet, uh, Psalm 22, 16. It went on to say the exact words of his enemies. He trusted in God, let God deliver him now. They said it. Enemies aren't going to agree with the Bible. Detail after detail is given to the Lord Jesus. He's declared us things to come so that we have the proof of the true God if we just take it through prophecy and it eliminates everybody else but him. And God asks his people to reason to doing that as they behold their God. Not only has he has spoken to us about himself, but about the chosen country of Israel. He's given prophecy. Remember the Lord Jesus himself when he was on earth, he gave prophecies. He looked at the temple of that day and the beautiful stones and said, not one stone will be left upon another. Go to the Temple Mount today. There's not one stone left upon another. He said in Luke 21, 24, speaking of Israel, that they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Did it happen? 70 AD, that they, they lost Israel. They lost Jerusalem. They, they've been captive in all nations, but yet it's a temporary thing. Uh, they will be saved in the end. And so he has told us things in advance. You know why he does that? Well, he says in John 14, 29, Behold, I have told you before it come to pass, that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Same logic of Isaiah. It'll put your confidence in the true God, the proof of God. He gives us prophecy in advance. We need not be afraid of it in the gospel. We, we have evidence to give people for their faith through prophecy of the true God and now his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And just as we close, he's even given us prophecies concerning the church. You know, you look around. Things aren't good in the church. And that's not to say there can't be overcomers, as our brother Joe's bringing before us. God still can work and restore the heart. 
But in a general whole, things aren't good. You know, you can look at that and say, why get involved? It's out of control, except the Bible tells me it was going to happen. <laughs> prophecy, 2,000 years old right now is this prophecy. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons. They're going to apostatize from the faith. You know what they're going to say? They're going to command, they're going to forbid to marry and command to abstain from meats. 1 Timothy 4.3. There's a whole religion out there that calls themselves Christian that don't allow their priest to marry and says on certain days you can't eat meat. And it's to be terms to earn your salvation. Huh? It's happened. It's, it's 2 Timothy 3.1. This know also that in the latter, last days perilous times shall come. And speaking of those who have a form of godliness, not the pagan, but those who have a form of, they embrace the religion and Christian religion. It says they'll be lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Sound familiar? It's all prophesied. So when I look at things like that, it, it doesn't, in a sense, cause me to doubt God. It, it, you are the true God. This Bible, you know exactly what you're saying. And so we can be overcomers by faith. And so we have the proof of God in Isaiah 41. Behold your God. Well, I look at the clock and it's time to stop. So what we'll do in session number two, Lord willing, this afternoon, we'll continue through this proclamation, this revelation of beholding our God uh, through chapter 48 and see other ways he begins to reveal himself beginning at chapter 42 this afternoon. May God, as our brother Joe read from his text, give you good understanding. Consider what I say, the Lord give you good understanding. Let's just close in prayer. Our God and Father, we just close with thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and behold our God, whatever else might have been getting our heart. God is not, thou art not one who is crushing us, thou art drawing our hearts back to thyself as we behold thy greatness and now manifested in the flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus. And Father, what evidence we have, what thy word, thy prophecy, stands forever. And so, Father, we just ask for thy encouragement on thy dear saints today as we commit one another now and go forth in the name with thanksgiving of the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.